The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Shapeshifter tonight is a man called Mike Sharman, the co-founder at RetroViral and also matchkit.co.za. He's an author. We spoke to him about his books before, but he's not been a shapeshifter. Um, Mike Sharman, did, what, did you have a life before advertising, before you became fabulous, before you became um, this, this social media demigod? Jeez, <laughs> Bruce. I always love the <laughs> intros because you never know what you're going to get. No, um, nor do I. I, I don't even know. I don't even know what it's going to be either. It's just sort of it starts, and I have to finish. So I, I need a word. And so tonight it's it was demigod. Your mind, isn't it? We just have to like <laughs> let it flow. It's very fluid. Love, uh, love chatting to you. Um, yeah, actually, I wanted to be an actor, and um, you know, my my dad and my mom. I think they were a little bit nervous about that. They they worried that you're never going to be able to pay your bond or pay for medical aid. And like those are the two biggest white parent fears that you have when you're growing up. You never afford a bond or a medical aid. You just haven't made it. And um, yeah, I ended up doing a marketing degree as a backup. And once that degree was complete, I went and did a stint in Hollywood. Learned how to do some stand-up comedy. I wrote a play. And then um, from there, I found my way into the illustrious world of uh, public relations. And for some people, that's a bit of a swear word. But um, yeah, it was a really great grounding. And then I won a fancy dress competition, as you do. And I went to London to watch the Proteas play at Lords. That was when the Proteas were, were a world beater. And uh, spent a couple of years in London, became totally obsessed with social media analytics from blogs and the insights that you could gain from digital means. And yeah, just uh, in 2010, came back and, and launched Retroviral because it was the perfect time to implement the then 27-year-old himself um, with a theory around this digital, the holy trinity of marketing. And for me, the holy trinity of marketing is about pairing digital PR and activation into an ecosystem play. And that's, um, that's what we started with. Explain, explain that, please, in, in, in a language that we all understand. Because you were doing very well up until that point about the, what the, the, the three horses, horsemen of the apocalypse. What did you call it? <laughs> the holy trinity of marketing. There we so go. Effectively, in terms of um, of marketing, you know, the more digital savvy we become, the more we actually crave human interaction. So you have to have an impact with a customer at a physical level somehow, but then you also require the digital aspect to make it spread. And then the PR is obviously the, the aspect that allows the story to be told through influential channels. And, you know, back when we started, influencers were only people such as yourself, journalists, DJs, etc. And, and shortly after that, um, almost was like the, the snowball effect of the influencer marketing side of things. I don't like being called an influencer. If, if, what we does ha- if what we do has influence, that's wonderful. But please, don't. It's a swear word. It's a terrible <laughs> word. I know, it's your, I know it's your bread and butter, and we can fight about it in a minute. When you were an actor, when you were an actor in Hollywood, um, were you, did you ever have a bit part, like Elon Musk, for example, appeared in a couple of the Marvel movies just in the background, and Stan Lee would appear in his own movies? Did you, did you ever sort of have a Hollywood moment? My biggest Hollywood moment was being invited to a barbecue that uh, was hosted by Terry Hatcher. She was obviously one of the biggest Ooh. actors at the time with Desperate Housewives and uh, Adam Durrett from The Counting Crows. And I got to listen to him play Mr. Jones acoustic style while Terry made us chocolate chip cookies. That was my Hollywood claim to fame moment. Well, hey, you've got one, which is nice. Um, there was a moment where you were a telemarketer as well. And I, and I don't want to do down telemarketing one little bit because I think it's a critical part of, of the building blocks toward selling 
um, towards customer service, towards PR even. Yeah, I think uh, Wendy Nola would, um, her, her toes would kill up if she heard that. Um, but I think it was such an important part of having a student job where you could do something where you learned to grow a really thick skin. So between telemarketing for a property, a now defunct property company, and um, uh, an actual business that did things like sampling at retail, so those fragrance samplers at the Eggers and the likes of, of those sorts of things. And it really did it. It taught me to go up to strangers and offer them a product or a service that they didn't know that they wanted. And a lot of the time, they generally didn't actually want it. But to pick up the phone and, and call a stranger, I think it's the ultimate baptism of fire in the marketing space. And in our business, I mean, we effectively pitch every day. All, all life's a pitch. And uh, we always have to be ready to, to sell something or to convince a potential client why they need to buy our creative. It, uh, does it become easier? I mean, does that, that pitch process, the cold call, I mean, it's less of a cold call now because you have a reputation and a brand. But in the early days of Retroviral, in those early days of 2010, um, when you came back from London and you started building Retroviral, um, it would have been a very similar process to you know being that promoter, being the telemarketer, doing the cold call. You know, I think, you know, Bruce, we do a lot of tap dances every day and, and those settings are always varied. Like sometimes it's the C-suite, sometimes it's your head of marketing, sometimes it's a, a, a lower um, level down the, the kind of chain of command. And in each of those situations, it's incredibly important to make that first impression count. And um, fortunately, you know, I've done a lot of public speaking over the years. Um, all those drama and debating lessons have have been invaluable to me. So, you know, any parents out there listening, like any chance to, to give your kids an opportunity to to get in front of a, strange, a group of strangers, get on a stage, it's so important. I mean, I still get nervous today when I do those talks and it's that nervous energy that helps fuel it and keep me at um, absolute, like, uh, at razor edge. And I think that that's an important thing is like the, the energy that you put out and your confidence and your belief in your own ideas is something that's incredibly important to help the clients get over the line to say yes, we're greenlighting this idea. Alon Rays, who you will know from Rays Corp, has got a, a school in Randburg where he teaches, it's, it's the school curriculum, but it's done with an entrepreneurial bent. Uh, and so it's, it focuses very much training entrepreneurs of the future. And each and every single classroom has got a stage in it. And it's, it's, a, it's a movable circle. It's about probably a meter and a half in diameter. Um, and it's a good 40 centimeters high. So when you step up onto it, you're looking down at the class and everybody in the class is looking up at you. And that's the pitch deck. That's where the kids have to learn to go up and do their pitches. And it's, you know, it's taking the school oral or the school debating competition and adding, you know, 18 teaspoons of sugar. It's it's really okay. such an important life skill is to learn to speak publicly in a confident, measured and convincing way. Totally. And I think that's one life skill that we really do sell short to our young people. I mean, there's a lot of challenges with our education system that we could spend days uh, debating. But I think the one thing that you could really teach your kids or, or help encourage is, is just get them to speak because 
speakers are so rare and people that speak with that level of confidence. And if you think about it, I mean, that's all politicians really are. They don't know what they're doing. They just speak well a lot of the time and they just generate <laughs> not even, and Not even. It's not, not even. They just speak. It's lots of words that flow just and some people word. are taken in by it. Anyway, let's not go there. Um, okay. <laughs> I want to talk about this next and it is the parody that you did. We spoke about the parody when you did it a while back, but this is South Africa's most loved nature documentary in history. It won a BAFTA last week. It may win an Oscar, and you oh, it's were entirely going to win the Oscar. Bruce, flat you out. were entirely disrespectful of this great <laughs> cinematom- cinematographic masterpiece. Of course, um, the original is my octopus teacher, and you guys saw this opportunity um, to promote one of your clients by parodying the documentary and it still goes down as one of my favorite advertising moments and really util- uh, utilizing public zeitgeist to promote um, something completely completely different <laughs> no that really was I remember a highlight the of day 2020. when it all started seeing this really strange thing this incredible rubbery tangly just majestic creature A lot of people say that a creepy crawly is like an alien. But the strange thing is that we're so similar in so many ways. In looks, in movement, and often in intelligence as well. (laughs) This is my favorite thing. Oh my goodness me. We're going to talk about that. In a moment, Mike Sharman is the co-founder at Retroviral, matchkit.co.za, and one of the, the minds behind the parody of Octopus Teacher. It took, it, it took um, certainly the South African social media world by storm. Did it have global reach? I wonder. That's what the internet provides, but does something as smart and as local as that actually get international reach? I wonder. More with Mike in a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Mike Sharman, the co-founder at Retroviral, our guest this evening. That octopus teacher parody, massive in South Africa, of course. Uh, the world, however, was watching my octopus teacher. Creepy Crawly is global, um, but did it have the the same sort of traction or any traction at all globally, courtesy of this wonderful thing called the Internet? Yeah, God bless the internet, Bruce, and for all the opportunities it's provided. Um, it really did go global. I think, you know, there were times when you and Andy Rice were speaking about it the same day it was being you know, touted as a top 10 out of the week out of Mexico and out of the day there. There was uh, mentions across uh, Europe and uh, both English speaking and uh, the native languages for each of those different markets. And then, um, you know, just amazing coverage on on podcasts. And there were two Australian women who have a very successful podcast. They were talking about it and they spent about 15 minutes. The podcast was just laughter and tears as they played a soundbite similar to the one that you played before the break. And um, it was just an incredible piece of timing i think and 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 sometimes it's you know we we say we give thanks to the viral gods for things that just work in your favor and um you mentioned before how we were quite cynical about it and for me you know i just needed to set the record straight i was very excited about my octopus teacher and i thought it was an incredible docky and i'm so stoked that the guys have done so well with Mm. it and i was the one that was actually like this is what 2020 needs it needs like some positive story for us to take a break from all the negativity the cancel culture all that stuff people being dragged as the youth say bruce and um then after watching it 
my wife was the cynical one. She was like, dude, if you end up having like a nervous breakdown on me and you want to go and swim in the ocean with an animal and neglect your children, she said, we are done. And, and, and in, in lockdown, I spent a lot of time on my bicycle. And that is kind of where I would distill a lot of my information and my messaging on projects I was working on. And that cynicism from Taryn, it influenced me the next morning. And I was like, you know what? This thing actually deserves a proper spoof and uh, got on some WhatsApps to Glenn uh, Biederman Pam, who's the comic in the, in the piece who does such an incredible Craig Foster. And we started bouncing some ideas that morning. And I said, listen, you'd be great at doing a spoof. We did an incredible John Steenhazen spoof earlier in the year uh, for Gumtree and Glenn and I, we've known each other for so many years that we also, we just have a really good rapport. And I think that's the, the secret to good creativity and working with actors and performers. When you've got that good relationship. You almost get that like telepathic sort of bounce off one another. And we were sending messages backwards and forwards. He was writing some scripts. I was editing and sending back WhatsApps. And then when he started doing the, vo- uh, the voice note recording of Craig Foster. It's just so magical. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Too I quick. was in tears from the voice notes. And um, it was like, uh, but, that but, was the but, spark. How, I mean, your entire business is built on the ability of making concepts go viral, but you can't make something go viral. Something goes viral oh, yeah, because it, no, but something goes viral because it's it, it taps into our funny bone or it taps into something that we feel strongly about. Um, that's we, You can't make it go viral. People make it go viral because they love it. Um, is the that fair? The you said earlier was spot on. The word you used earlier was zeitgeist. And I think if you can tap into the zeitgeist and the best advertising and creative work and content is around premises and insights. And the, the insights and the premise was around how tough the year had been. And here's a documentary that's something completely out of the blue, but it has all these magical and hopeful elements. And because we tapped into the popularity of that, I think it allowed us to have that accelerated approach to how we spread it and how we seeded it. And, you know, for me, um, I'll argue that that virality does have a, a nature of science behind it, just as, as stand-up comedy does. And for, for us, you know, we're not like that typical agency where we create content and then we put it out onto a channel and hope for the best or we stick it on Instagram. For us, we really drive the engagement and drive the eyeballs, send it to specific people, share it via WhatsApp. Like there's a whole distribution channel that that takes place behind the scenes um, that people don't see. And I think that's where the magic comes from our side that not a lot of other people are personally invested in. I think a lot of people make the mistake that if you are on social media now, but I'm marketing, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because check me, I got, a, I got a presence and I got retweeted. Everyone's <laughs> checking my stuff. Um, and yeah. it, it's, it's that assumption that social media is the vehicle and social media is a vehicle it is a fabulous yeah. vehicle but um your, your your science then behind virality um we've got to be careful about virality versus virility <laughs> they're two completely different <laughs> things yeah, exactly. um but behind your virality um is the sort of multidisciplinary approach therefore of saying yes social media but it's only one one leg of this thing Exactly. And by you, you talking about it on radio, by um, news, certain news channels on TV talking about it, on other radio stations talking about it, it's like it's equally as important to be on all of those other channels so that it becomes a proper ecosystem play. Social is just one tactic, exactly like you said. 
Yeah. Uh, talk to me about the tie-up with Brian Abana. Um I saw him a little while ago. He told me things were going well at Match Kit. This is your um, attempt to help sports people and, and, and really um, raise the, their game once they've stopped playing their game. Definitely. And I think the whole insight came from um, the end of 2019. Obviously, incredible moment. Springboks winning the World Cup again. I think we haven't really had a chance to properly celebrate that with all of the, the chaos in pandemonium land over the last year. But uh, Brian was in Tokyo. He was doing some um, commentating and he was there for the final. And his biggest insight was the fact that of all those um, 2019 World Cup winning Springboks, none of them had a website. And even if you look at someone like Sia, he didn't even own SiaKalisi.com. Someone was domain squatting on that and offering it up for $100,000 to be purchased, just the domain link, um, once the Springboks had won. So it was just a fascinating way. Like, obviously, the world has evolved, and websites aren't necessarily seen as cool by athletes. Athletes have adopted social platforms because it's a lot easier to post to social. They have wonderful Instagram accounts with huge followings. A lot of them have... have evolved into the world of TikTok because of the virality thereof and to reach fans in new ways. And the thing is, we always say with social, social isn't necessarily the best channel. It's the easiest, but it's not always the most commercial. And we felt that there was a real opportunity to leverage something there. And I just finished reading That Will Never Work by Mark Randolph, which was <laughs> yeah. the, he's the co-founder of, of Netflix, as you know. And then we'd had a chat with a, with a prominent South African VC at the time who was talking about Brian and his profile and scale and what kind of things could scale. So I had this like extreme amount of, of scale references in my head at the time. And partnering with um, uh, Brian, with with Ben, with Sugar and uh, Andy, you know, we said, what's a way for us to elevate the profile of athletes? Because a lot of them are terrible at personal branding. You know, they rely on the on-field antics to drive the success of their personal brand. But, you know, Brian was the one who, during his career, every time a new platform came out, he'd register Brian Habana on it, whether it be Pinterest or TikTok or platforms that he may never use again. But he was always so important about owning his own real estate. And that was one thing that we realized that athletes weren't very good at doing. So we thought, what if we could create a platform where they could effectively connect via the Instagram account, because that's where they look the most mm. professional, and they look the most beautiful, and they could build a <laughs> platform to showcase their sponsors, they could be able to show their stats and their figures and their reach and the engagement, all the stuff that people like me as marketers, we're obsessed with, like, do you have millennial followers? Do you have Gen Z followers? Uh, where are those followers based in the world? And off the back of that, they could also sell merch, they could sell voice notes, they could sell video shout outs to fans. So we've created this ecosystem play to help athletes better commercialize their careers by first building a succinct personal brand. Fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing uh, this evening on The Money Show. Mike Charman, co-founder of Retroviral.